Well, good afternoon, everyone. Make sure my mic is on. Try that again. Good afternoon. This is uh, what we call the graveyard slot after lunch. Um, prime time, that's right. Uh, uh, but uh, Jeff knows that I am the most exciting speaker, and so to keep you all awake, uh, he asked me to, to, to bring this session now this afternoon. So let me just say what a privilege it is and an honor it is for me to uh, be here with you at this second uh, Reform Con. I'm a great admirer of the work of Apollo Gear, uh, the church, uh, the studios, the TV, everything that uh, Jeff and Luke and the team and James uh, are doing and uh, have done. So it's a real delight to actually be down here to be part of it. I have been down to Phoenix once before, uh, well, actually a couple of times before, but once for um, uh, Apollo Gear uh, to do a next week program, and, and I met some of you then. It's a great joy to see some of you uh, again and a lot of new faces. So thank you to Apollo Gear for having me, uh, this sort of old Brit from Canada, uh, to be part of this young, hip, and uh, exciting uh, conference. The, uh, one of the interesting things uh, that's uh, before us as we bring different um, people together for this event is to, to think through... Christianity and the public space, the, the confrontation of Christianity today with secular and increasingly neo-pagan culture, and to see how the Lord brings together the things that we are saying. We've already heard today a bit about the kingdom of God, uh, and that every square inch of the universe is claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but in order to engage and confront the culture in which we live, there's a prerequisite for doing that, and that is to have a Christian way of thinking uh, about everything. And you would think that that would be obvious and clear to everyone, but remarkably, a consistently Christian view of everything is not obvious. In fact, even within the Reformed tradition today, there are plenty who say, well, you know, is there really a Christian way to boil an egg? Uh, is there really a Christian way to think about and to do everything. So even having the label reform does not mean that we have grappled adequately in the confrontation of the faith with culture, uh, what it means to have a truly Christian mind. That word culture is an interesting word. The English word culture, agri-culture, culture has a Latin root, cultus, uh, and it really is about worship. We still use the word, actually, cult, don't we, to describe certain aberrant uh, religious perspectives. The cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and so on. We talk about the cults because culture is about worship. And cultures are the, cul uh, are the product of the cultivation of minds and hearts, a kind of intellectual and moral tilling of our lives in terms of a prevailing uh, idea of the divine, actually a, a prevailing idea of worship. Some years ago, I was actually speaking in California, and my subject was Christ and culture, and in particular, the relevance of Christ to the transformation of cultural life. 
And after my lecture, I was taken to lunch by a very pleasant young couple. And the first question they asked me with a smile over lunch was, how long have you been an apologetic? <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I appreciated the joke, of course. Um, but interestingly enough, as the conversation went on, it highlighted to me a typical misperception that we have of the real challenge facing Christians today in the public space. Christianity as it confronts secular culture. I'm actually convinced that the biggest problem, the central problem, is the near total collapse of the Christian world and life view uh, in the culture. Some of you may have seen the latest uh, research that just came out from Pew uh, Research. Andrew, I don't know whether Dr. Sandlin is going to be talking about this later, but we're seeing a precipitous decline of the Christian world and life view in Western culture, and tragically often in the life of the church. And this is why a conference like ReformCon is needed. The urgent task actually before us as God's people is the recovery of a Christian mind in ecclesiastical leadership, that's leadership within the church, and in cultural leadership. It's not just the training of an elite group of Christian Jedi uh, to defend key features of our faith against traditional objections. It's not just that we need better techniques in evangelism or smarter apologists, in other words. That's not the fundamental problem. What we need is a wholesale recovery and in some instances, a fresh discovery of what it means to think Christianly and therefore to be Christian. In other words, I think we're actually in need of a reformation again in the life of the church. The questions that are actually challenging us right now in the West are qualitatively, not just simply quantitatively, different from those that we were facing even 25 years ago. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm in my mid-40s now. And uh, 25 years ago, when I started in the work of uh, evangelism and apologetics, the questions that people asked were actually quite different. I often illustrate this by talking about the, the shift from a, an Acts 2 cultural environment in the West to an Acts 17 cultural environment. When Billy Graham came to England in the 1950s, did a series of events called the Haringey Crusades, thousands of people packed into football stadiums every night for weeks on end. Thousands of people in London. Uh, in the end, Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister at the time, asked Billy Graham to come to Downing Street, and he asked him, how, how is this possible? How, how can you do this? How, how, do you, how do you bring all of these people out? Well, he came back again in the 1980s, but the impact was not even close to being the same. Now, was the difference, had, had Billy Graham stopped being capable of preaching? Had he forgotten his Bible? Uh, no, but the, the discourse that dominated the public space, the discourse that dominated cultural life in the 50s had radically changed by the 1980s. There's no longer a mutual understanding of reality that un could undergird a common 
discourse, that is the old shared foundations that we used to be able to appeal to, have eroded uh, beneath us. Some people say that, you know, Paul recognized uh, when he spoke of wanting to know only Christ and him crucified, that he kind of made a mistake in Athens that he tried to do apologetics and really should have stuck to a simple gospel like Peter in Acts chapter 2. But when you look at the, uh, the people who were listening to Peter in Acts chapter 2, they were Jewish proselytes. They were people from around the known world, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. They believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in the God of Israel. Peter just had to say, look, this is what the prophet Joel said. This is the Messiah. This is Christ. 3,000 are converted in one day. They're cut to the heart. But Paul's approach in Acts 17, when he's in front of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these ancient humanists and atomists and atheists, uh, was quite different. He painted a picture of the biblical world and life view first, and then he comes to a declaration about the one who was raised from the dead, and some of the most prominent members of that council uh, end up believing in Christ. Others say, we want to hear you again about this. Others scoff and laugh at him. And our situation today is much more like that than the Acts 2 situation. And it means that some of the traditional apo- uh, questions of apologetics are not heard so much anymore. It's pretty rare to be accosted on the nature of miracles or whether good works is sufficient to get me to heaven or, unless you're speaking with a Muslim, whether God is triune. Or, I haven't been asked in a very long time, you know, well, you know, give me four good reasons to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Actually, the questions have shifted to civilizational, uh, cultural questions. Uh, The older questions tended to presuppose an underlying Christian world and life view. Many millennials today don't know the Bible has two testaments. How are they going to ask questions about the text of the New Testament? Uh, Many have never read about the biblical miracles. How are they going to ask questions about the resurrection of Jesus? So you can see how, and that's of course not across the board, but as a generalization, that's accurate. For the first time, we confront ourselves in, actually in many centuries, we confront ourselves with, we're confronted with a situation where people's underlying assumptions about the world are very different from our own. And that means the kinds of questions that people deem relevant in our culture and in the public space that are worth addressing, even the theoretical problems that they pose are changed. Now, the pervasiveness of these anti-Christian worldviews has not just impacted culture and public life and political life, it's impacted the contemporary church. And there were a few who recognized this problem Uh, back in the 1960s as it was emerging. And there are quite a few of them, of course. One of them was an Englishman called Harry Blamire. I read his uh, book back in my early 20s. It had a real impact upon me when I read it. And he points out a very commonplace fact. He said that the uh, thinking of modern people has been secularized. Okay, well, nothing revolutionary there. But he said the problem is not simply for us that people's thinking has been secularized. The issue uh, is that, tragic as this is, he says, it would not be so desperately tragic had the Christian mind held out against the secular drift. But unfortunately, the Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness 
unmatched in Christian history. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a spiritual being in prayer and in meditation, he, that's the Christian, strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view which relates all problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrine, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy. And actually, many Christians today, professing Christians, don't even accept biblical morality in the way he was speaking about it. So, in other words, it's no longer enough for us to come to a conference to be equipped to answer three or four of the top questions and and go away with a few easy answers, as though that's all that's required. No, what we really need is a renewal and reformation in terms of a comprehensive scriptural view of reality whilst learning to understand and respond to the underlying religious motives that are shaping our cultural life and every aspect of the public space. And that will enable us, as we reformulate a Christian mind, as we're reshaped again by the Word of God, that will help us to reformulate the questions that people have, explain the root of the meaning of the non-believer's own objections to the faith, both real and imagined, And we can only do that from a robustly and distinctly Christian world and life view. Uh, It's not enough even just to be active uh, in Christian things, to say, well, we need to defend this this issue, or we need to defend a Christian view of this or a Christian view of that. We need to get into the public space and, and demonstrate, or whatever it may be. Critical as those things are... Blamais puts it this way, he says, there's something before the Christian dialogue, and that is the Christian mind. A mind trained, informed, equipped to handle data of secular controversy within a framework of reference which is constructed of Christian presuppositions. The Christian mind is the prerequisite of Christian thinking, and Christian thinking is the prerequisite of Christian action. You see, a lot of Christians get into Christian action. If they do so without a Christian mind, it's not long before they're bored of Christian action. And they're not in it anymore. How many of us have experienced the lives of our friends, our family members, uh, of our children, perhaps? Some of you I can see here will have children, grandchildren, who have wandered away from the faith, they've rejected orthodox biblical faith, they've adopted unscriptural worldviews, unbiblical lifestyles. We're witnessing firsthand all around us, yes, even in America, the collapse of the Christian mind and therefore the Christian way of life. So, you know, Barack Obama and Justin Trudeau and... uh, People like Theresa May, former British Prime Minister, they didn't just wake up one morning and decide that we needed to redefine marriage. These things have been, the, the, the shape of our culture, of our public space has been under 
has been undergoing a transformation over a period of time, especially over the last 80 years, where suddenly we're sensing the whole thing is speeding up. And the band-aid solutions that we've had on offer to our hemorrhaging faith are simply not up to the task now. Just, you know, well, maybe if we just send our kids to Christian camp and give them some good influences, that will be enough. And we find it isn't enough. This is the challenge. This is why you're here. We need a radical root and branch response to our time in terms of a total Christian view of reality where systematic belief can confront the systematic unbelief of our culture. Now, let me just add by that, I do not mean that what's needed is the working out of an elitist intellectualizing of the faith that requires an English accent, uh, a kind of new evangelical scholasticism uh, that means we all have to become Christian philosophers and top-rate Christian theologians, uh, that this is the answer, that what we need is just intellectuals. I read a book a few years ago by a Catholic historian called Paul Johnson. It's called Intellectuals, and the whole book is a warning about looking out for and not listening to intellectuals, uh, because they seem to be the ones that do the most damage. We're not talking about uh, here simply intellectualizing the faith, that we need some sort of a new elite class. Rather, we need all of us a relearning to think and live in terms of the Word of God in every aspect of our lives as we think about human identity, human sexuality, marriage, family, law, politics, economics, arts, science, business, media, education, and everything else besides. A distinctly Christian way of thinking about all of these things and practicing all of these things. Our culture for many centuries really has been a synthetic culture. Uh, Even the Christianized uh, aspects of Western culture in Europe, uh, even here in North America, have historically been a blending, really, in my judgment, of Greco-Roman and Christian thought. A synthesizing of uh, the core ideas of Greek philosophy uh, with Christianity, and it's all coming unstuck. So the task is to think Christianly, and you can see that they're thinking Christianly just by the cross there in the middle of their head, right? So we need to think Christianly. Now, what I've just said, you know, may sound a little bit extreme. Do we really need that kind of programmatic agenda? I mean, I know, Joe, that we need to, be, uh, we need to address the abortion issue. That's critical. We've got to be aware of uh, the uh, attack on human identity and sexuality. Yes, Christians need to be aware of that. That's important. But really thinking Christianly about everything, is this not a bit over the top? Is this not pushing it a little bit far? Is it a bit alarmist? Well, the American Christian philosopher Roy Clouser uh, framed the question of the Christian skeptical of this kind of thinking this way. He says, while, while one can articulate a Christian view of God, a Christian view of how to stand in right relation to God, and a Christian view of ethics, 
Why is it necessary to articulate a distinctly Christian view of everything? And that does seem like a fair question on the face of it. After all, isn't our faith, according to many people, many Christians, about the hope of heaven? About the afterlife? I mean, aren't we really filling in time here? Trying to stop a few bad things from happening, snatch a few brands from the burning, uh, and get everybody to heaven and keep them safe within the church till we go there. I mean, on that view, well, in the end, everything is not really very important, is it? I mean, if the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and we barely escape this creation with a resurrected body, and that's about it, everything's just not really that important. Only a very narrow band of a few things are important. And besides, isn't it only the areas of morality and sort of spirituality where Christians and non-Christians disagree in the public space? Isn't the vast majority of daily life basically neutral? Well, many Christians will agree, of course, that we should think about Christian things more. Sure, we need to think about Christian things more. We need to be spiritual people, they say. But surely that doesn't mean there's a Christian view of everything. Now, those types of questions I'm suggesting themselves belie the collapse of a Christian mind. The way those questions are formulated belie the collapse of the Christian mind. Beyond this rather unbiblical diminishing of the goodness and value of the totality of creation, for example, so there, there is a, what we can call a latent dualism. Dualism. Think about a double-decker bus, the kind of London buses that, you know, the red London bus, you know, is a two-story bus. And in this view of reality, there are basically two stories. There's a lower story in which there is uh, basically most of everyday life. There's your life in the world. There's your education and your family and your job. And, you know, there's politics and there's schools and universities and so forth. And basically this is all in the lower story. And what we need to do there is tell people about Jesus so that they can go to heaven. And then in the upper story, there's the church And then there's the church institute, there's spirituality, there's your personal devotions, there's prayer, there's evangelism, and a few spiritual things. And those are really, really important. This idea really stems from a Greek view of the world, the Greek philosopher's view of the world, of form and matter. In the the upper story, you've got the world of ideas, form, spirit, soul. And in the lower story, you've got the material world, which is lesser, even evil. And the goal for the Greek was you escape the lower level, the lower story, the lower deck of the bus, into the upper deck. You flee one domain of reality into the other. That's kind of salvation, really. So for them, disembodiment was the, was the object, was the goal. By the way, that's why the Greeks laughed. Some of them laughed when Paul was preaching in Athens in Acts 17, when Paul started speaking of the resurrection of the dead, because their view of reality was that two-story view. Why would God want to raise, why would the divine raise a corpse? What's the point of that? That's a step backwards. The body is a prison for the soul. 
So on the one hand, there's this two-story double-decker view of reality that is not Christian. But it also, there seems to be there a fundamental confusion that equates thinking Christianly with thinking about Christian matters, Christian issues, Christian things. This is the way Blameyer puts it, which I think is helpful. He says, to think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. You can think Christianly or you can think secularly about the most sacred things, the sacrament, for example. Likewise, you can think Christianly or you can think secularly about the most mundane things. There is nothing in our experience, however trivial, worldly, or even evil, which cannot be thought about Christianly. The fact that many people are writing about things Christian is in itself irrelevant to the question of whether there is still a Christian mind. In other words, just because there's Christian books and Christian churches and lots of people talking about Christian things doesn't mean there's still a Christian mind. There's a difference between thinking about Christian stuff and thinking Christianly about everything. And this is the, seems to me, to be the critical issue. Now you might say, well, that sounds all very interesting, but can we really establish that biblically? Can we establish that scripturally? How do we know there's really a Christian view of everything? Well, there's a very critical expression found in scripture. It's repeated many times in the Bible. This is just one reference. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or some translations render it, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. Now, most Christians would be, who know their Bibles, are familiar with that text, and we tend to pietize and spiritualize it. So we think, yes, of course, you know, we need to know the Lord, you know, so that we can live a wise life, make good ethical decisions. But actually, Scripture is talking about more than that, more than that. The word translated foundation or beginning in this passage literally means the key or the principal part. The key or principal part. Jesus actually makes the same point when he is rebuking uh, misleading interpretations of the law in Luke chapter eleven fifty two, He says, woe to you experts in the law, you have taken away the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge. Key to knowledge is the knowledge of God as revealed to us in the scriptures. And so the apostle Paul directs us to Christ who gives us true understanding. This is what Paul says. By him, you were enriched in everything. Doesn't say you were enriched in your institutional church life or just your personal devotions. You're enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. All speech and all knowledge. So Paul's saying that knowing God through Christ affects everything, all knowledge, not some artificially restricted spiritual knowledge. Then a little later, he says, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. This is thought and thinking and knowledge that has no reference to God. 
Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, once again, there's a danger of spiritualizing this text into a pious sentiment. How seriously do we take it? Paul means that every area of knowledge, in fact, every area of life in all creation belongs to those who belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. We belong to Christ. Everything belongs to Christ. So all the resources, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says elsewhere, are hid in Christ. Truth and meaning are not captive to the thinking of unbelievers. Quite the contrary. They neither know truth nor life as they should. So although, and this is certainly the case as you uh, interact with the non-unbelievers all around you, unbelievers know many things, but they know them partially. Their knowledge of all things suffers from a critical lack. This is the way Dr. Clauser puts it. There is some kind of mistake with respect to every kind of truth and knowledge that can't be avoided if one does not know God but can be avoided if one does know God. You see, it's not that the non-believer doesn't, the unbeliever, I should say, there are no non-believers, the unbeliever in Christ doesn't stumble over the truth. Well, they have to live in God's world. So they stay, it's, uh, it's like the illustration I often give of, the, of, of a join-the-dot, connect-the-dot puzzle. Before there was Xbox and Nintendo and Game Boy and all of that, there were connect-the-dot puzzles. And... Uh, a connect-the-dot puzzle works, and child learning to draw recognize shapes because there is an author to the puzzle. You open up the book, and all you see are dots on a page. But when you take a crayon or a pencil and you join those dots in the right order, the meaning emerges. Right? You, it's a discovery process. The child doesn't invent a meaning. The meaning is already there by virtue of creation. So what we're not saying here is that non-believers don't stumble over truths, nor are we saying that uh, if you want a distinctly Christian view of quantum mechanics or the mating habits of the common cockroach or the intricacies of human physiology, all you need to do is look up the relevant text in the Bible. You know, so you go to see your surgeon and, you know, just say, can you show me the passage about heart surgery and let's just follow that. You're probably not going to hang around too long in that doctor's surgery, right? Because the Bible doesn't give us an exhaustive or an encyclopedic knowledge of all things and all disciplines. It doesn't intend to. That's because part of the task that was given to human beings at the beginning of creation was to observe, to discover, to name various created entities and their functions, and then bring out the potential of creation by turning it into a God-glorifying culture, by learning about God's laws for the various aspects of created reality in light of his word. So it's the foundations of the word of God which then shape our thinking in every other area. So a a thinking Christianly, a distinctly Christian view of things, centers not on finding a proof text for thermodynamics or heart disease, 
but on recognizing Christ as the religious foundation that is the key or principal part of all knowledge. And therefore taking account of, full account, of what Scripture says about God, about his creation, about his law, about his work in history, in all of our observations, in all of our thinking, in all of our theorizing, in all of our living. And if we actually reject the scriptural world and life view of creation, fall, redemption in Jesus Christ, and the consummation of all things, if we reject that paradigm, we are making a perilous and tragic religious mistake that sets aside the principle or key part of knowledge, and it misdirects then our total understanding. So that, that means you will encounter people, just as um, Jeff and James recently did, who are brilliant uh, AI robotics scientists and can create remarkable pieces of technology but simply cannot think straight when it comes to reasoning about the nature of created reality about God and truth. Just can't think straight. Well, if there's a way of thinking Christianly, that means there must be a way of thinking unchristianly. I know I'm inventing some new words here, but that's all right. Everybody's doing that all the time on Twitter, so why can't I join in? (laughs) Thinking unchristianly. What does that mean? Well, of course, those who reject then the revelation of God and his word obviously don't have a Christian view of things, but that doesn't make them neutral about thought, about facts, about culture. And we're seeing that in the public space today. It does not mean that they do not have a religious foundation for their thinking. Rather, something is brought in to take the place of the living God, always in thinking unchristianly. In other words, the unbeliever brings in an explainer for reality that will always posit something that just is, that is self-existent, that's just there, Something that doesn't depend on anything else for its being. In other words, they will posit an alternative, unconditioned reality. They will try and bring in an alternative, unconditioned reality that's the explainer for everything else. At the end of the day, everybody either believes in the living God or will give something else, something created, the status of divinity that belongs only to God. The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And of course, man is his own favorite idol. This foundation will impact all knowledge and all truth and all cultural life and all public life. Over the centuries, actually, unbelievers have tried to give divine status to pretty much everything. Planetary bodies, emperors, states, Numbers. Do you know the Pythagoreans worship num- numbers? They sang hymns to the number 10. We've worshipped ideas, logic, human reasoning, matter and energy, and lots of other things besides. The way Closer puts it is this. Those who don't see the divine as the biblical transcendent creator will make it some part of the world instead. And regarding anything in the world as self-existent will slant, guide, and control the deeper content of every concept. The name given to this way of explaining the way, that I, the way that identifies what part of the world all the rest depends on is reduction. 
A reductionist explanation is one that claims to have found the part of the world that everything else depends on. A Christian should say, these are all wrong. These are all examples of regarding part of creation as the creator. The ultimate explainer is no part of creation at all. Every one of these divinity candidates is real, but they all depend on God. The Christian would adopt a systematically non-reductionist approach to every sort of theory, every sort of knowledge, and every concept of everything. A non-reductionist approach to every concept of everything. The attempt to replace God and worship the creature rather than the creator takes on remarkably deceptive forms. I believe that my friend James White will be tackling Romans 1 a little later for you. And these idols shape people's thinking and through them they shape culture. Let me give you um, an example Some people try and take the physical, biological aspects of reality, material reality, and use them to explain everything else. I've taken this one because this is typical of the modern university. The physical and the biological are said to be truly real, and everything else, non-physical properties like your logical thought or beauty, aesthetic beauty, love even number, are either illusory or just byproducts of what is physical. Everything is made dependent on the physical, biological facet of reality, and everything else is then diminished as less important or less real. In other words, you overstate one area in any kind of idolatry. One aspect of creation is overestimated relative to everything else, and that's what we mean by reductionism. By contrast, the Christian mind, the Christian way of thinking about everything, regards all things as equally real, equally dependent on God, equally subject to God and his law word, so that no one part of the cosmos explains or generates all the rest. We don't reduce the universe in part or whole to one or more aspect of the cosmos. We don't even reduce it to the idea of the divine. That's pantheism. In other words, in the Christian view, there is a creator-creature distinction. And this is the foundation of the Christian world and life view, a creator-creature distinction. There is a dependency of all creation directly on God that makes every facet of creation equally real with no part reduced in its importance or role relative to the rest. And that's actually, that image there, and that would have been exactly what the philosopher Cornelius Van Til would have drawn on his chalkboard when he was teaching a class in Christian apologetics. This is what marks out the basic framework of a truly Christian mind and establishes that there is a Christian view of everything. So many of those things we actually take for granted You know, it's not until the Muslims come into an area and start insisting that uh, everything is halal or that they want Sharia law or that women should cover themselves uh, in the hijab that we start to realize that there is a Christian way of thinking about food, dress, and law. 
This also means that the immaterial aspects of creation, your thinking, your heart or spirit, your faith, your reason, ideals of beauty and so forth, are not higher or more real or more important than your body. Not, your body's not less real. The earth is not less important than heaven. Spiritual exercises are not more holy than doing politics or gardening. And as long as Christians think it's more holy to be in full-time ministry or doing devotions than engaging in political life, we won't have much of an impact on political life. Because it's all part of that dualistic world and life view. As though God cannot be faithfully worshipped there. In other words... It's not more holy to pray than to do your gardening. You need to do both, really. Wives, you can remind your husbands of that when you think, gosh, the yard's looking a real mess right now. In other words, the Christian mind would destroy artificial divisions within creation of sacred and secular. Law and politics, the body and human sexuality, art and culture, marriage and family are as important and subject to God and his word as church services, prayer and personal devotions. This is the Christian mind because creation is important. And this is the only creation there will be or there is or ever will be. It's going to be released from its bondage to corruption, Paul says in Romans 8, its bondage to futility. But this is your home. Get used to it. You will not be able to show me a single passage that says, I'm going to die and then go to heaven. That's a Greek idea. Scripture does say that my life is hid together with Christ in God. I'm already seated in heavenly places in Christ. Actually, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and there's going to be a renewed heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. So until we get a robust creational theology that affirms the full value and significance of creation, we won't get the full significance and value of cultural and political life, and we'll continue to retreat from all of those spheres of influence. So many people spend their time longing for heaven rather than serving God in the earth where he's placed them. Now, that might seem a bit abstract, but the real-world consequences of all of this really do matter, because when you apply unbelieving reductionist thought, you get communism and atheistic materialism, you get Nazism, you get Stalin, you get Mao, you get Pol Pot, you also get Justin Trudeau. And this brings us to our present cultural predicament, which I've got a few minutes to spend on. We're slightly behind schedule because of our technical problems at the beginning, but I just want to cover this a little bit uh, to bring us right up to date, that it's also possible to overestimate, to absolutize, not just the biological or physical aspect of reality, but actually the lingual, linguistic sign mode of reality as well. Words in concert with our thinking to make that a divinity concept and 
use it to change culture. And that is perhaps the imposing idol of our time. So let's come to the nonsense machine of modern Western culture. We do live in strange days, don't we, where if ever we were living in a moment where we had an illustration of the reasonings of the wise being meaningless, our current cultural posture is surely it. If believers were ever needed to see a need for a Christian perspective on everything, the time is now, because basically, verities, norms, virtues that seemed unquestioned for centuries, excepting only the eccentric or insane, have been seriously positioned for radical review, and truth has increasingly been used to a matter of power and identity politics. Even the notion that human beings have real definitive natures or that ordinary empirical observations about biological reality are valid, that's been assaulted today in modern cultural life. Radically in Europe and in Canada, but it's very much making inroads here as well. The noted English philosopher Roger Scruton, Blackfriars Hall, Oxford, he said this, the left-wing enthusiasm that swept through institutions of learning in the 60s was one of the most efficacious intellectual revolutions in recent history and commanded a support among those affected by it that has seldom been matched by any revolution in the world of politics. So the roots of this revolution predate the 60s, of course, but it was during this period that they came to prominent flowering and they've developed and grown in power since. So if you were wondering where peace, love, lentil soup and VW camper vans went from the 60s, well they went into the university and took the professor's roles and taught my generation how to think. The goal of the movement was not simply the creation of an opaque academic discourse for sort of uh, bohemian intellectuals to talk about in their echo chamber. The desire was social subversion and cultural transformation at every level, right under the noses of the bourgeoisie, that is the property-owning middle class, that they attacked, and funded by their taxes and naive donations. And the justification for their revolution was this. Scruton puts it this way. Two attributes of the new order justify pursuit of it, liberation and social justice. Familiar with those terms? These correspond roughly to the liberty and equality advocated at the French Revolution. It means emancipation from the structures, from the institutions, customs and conventions that shaped the bourgeoisie order and which established a shared system of norms and values at the heart of Western society. Much of their literature is devoted to deconstructing such institutions as the family, the school, law, and the nation-state through which the inheritance of Western civilization has been passed down to us. So, in other words, what most ordinary people see as the normal, necessary structures of society and social order, these thinkers say they are structures of domination. Structures of domination that must be subverted and destroyed. And these ideas are not simply in academic journals and art galleries and uh, academic libraries. They are in the courts, they're in the hospitals, they're in parliaments, senates, congress. In fact, they are in the classroom with our youngest children in the West. 
what the Christian is actually facing today is a radical desire for a clean sweep of history. It's an agenda that has always motivated actually humanistic revolutionaries. A clean sweep of history. You know, at the French Revolution, they enthroned the goddess of reason in Notre Dame. They tried to start the calendar over again from zero, from the beginning of the French Revolution. They tried to dispense with a working week, because that was Christian, seven days. The essential idea of the revolution is that meaning is no longer something objective or transcendent. And so what's happened is fraudulent, unintelligible theories of language and of identity are passed off in our society today as the key to renewal and the key to liberation in human society. There is nothing that transcends human signification, that is language, and culturally conditioned perceptions and customs. Now, don't look for objective meaning as such in the thinking and use of the language of the revolutionaries, because that would presuppose reality has a pre-established givenness to it. It doesn't have a givenness to it, according to them. The meaning is the use, the way they manipulate the language to reimagine reality. Language is the tool to subvert established meaning because established meaning to them is oppression. Meaning as something ontologically real or given, in their view, is a Christian conspiracy. A Christian conspiracy. So by the conjuring of these new revolutionaries, language spells will be cast to alter social reality. And so it was Roger Scruton who called this the assault on meaning and truth, the nonsense machine. The nonsense machine. And a linguistic emancipation from reality and real knowledge. And it's a way of eliminating real argument and reasoned debate. It becomes a matter of simply shouting power and politics. No need to ask what the revolution means, says Scruton, or what you might achieve by means of it. Nothing means anything, and that is the revolution, namely the machine to annihilate meaning. The machine to annihilate meaning. One influential user of the nonsense machine was a woman, is a woman, called Judith Butler. Judith Butler. She wrote an important book, it was published in 1990, called Gender Trouble. She cultivates a very obscure style, which is necessary to sound profound. You need to be obscure. She's an American Jewish lesbian leading feminist. She's influenced a whole generation of feminists, actually, and of social theorists to regard the idea of man and woman as mythical creations of language repetition. (laughs) Mythical creations of language repetition. What most people in every culture through all history have taken to be a real condition, being a man or a woman, are for Butler and those who follow her, imaginary formations 
What we think of as a direct perception is a sophisticated illusion generated by language. Now, notice immediately the reductionism here that I talked about earlier. Here is a new explainer for everything. Here's a new divinity concept. Language, signs that we use and repeat. Because the reality-denying theories of these feminists like Monique Wittig and Judith Butler are now taught as facts in classrooms in Canada and in many places in the United States and Europe to small children, let's not zoom past what seems insane too quickly. In Canada, for example, right now, we have a case... This is a BT activist, a, BC, a man living in BC. He's a, an activist, Christian. He's just been fined $55,000 for misgendering somebody by a Canadian tribunal. A man running as a woman in politics because he uh, described the fact and explained to people that this uh, woman was in fact a man he was taken to a human rights tribunal where he was fined $55,000. We have another case in BC right now where a Canadian court has found a father guilty of family violence for calling his daughter a girl. We have a situation in Canada where basically... If your child identifies as the other gender and you don't support that with therapy or hormone treatments or counseling or whatever to support their transition, the Children's Aid Society have the authority to take your children away from you. And here, a protection order was ordered by the Supreme Court to protect the girl from her father calling her a girl. To protect the daughter from her father, that's violence, according to uh, the Canadian courts. Judith Butler says, you see, there is no reason to divide up human bodies into male and female sexes, except that such a division suits the economic needs of heterosexuality and lends a naturalistic gloss to the institution of heterosexuality. A lesbian transcends the binary opposition between woman and man. A lesbian is neither a woman nor a man. But further, a lesbian has no sex. She is beyond the categories of sex. One is not born female, one becomes female. But even more radically, one can, if one chooses, become neither male nor female, woman nor man. So this is saturating the public space and popular culture today. And you can see the Marxist root of it, actually, there. The recreation of the human person... And the only reason we historically recognize the distinction between male and female is that it suits the capitalist desires of heterosexual men. In other words, the Christian concept of the family. We pretend that there is a male-female distinction and that it's natural when it is, in fact, an illusion. So here the argument is that the very linguistic use of the terms male and female is productive of a culture that privileges heterosexuality endorses marriage and family, which is oppression. And that's why we're in the battle royal right now, culturally and politically, for the use of pronouns. How many of you have heard of Jordan Peterson in Canada? Not even a Christian yet. 
but refusing to use uh, gender-neutral pronouns, zeezer, they, and all these sorts of things, refusing to be coerced to do that, and has become a celebrity overnight uh, because of it. You see, for these radicals, sex is a political and cultural interpretation of the body. It's politics. Everything's politics now. You see, people who think, look, you don't, bring the, don't need to bring the gospel and the Bible into politics. Don't bring politics into the church. The proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ is political. It is political. It's inescapably so. The exclusivity of the claims of Christ have political implications. Everything's made political today. Human body parts are just a discontinuous set of attributes upon which the language of sex imposes an artificial unity. In other words, a language regime imposed on a culture shapes people's perceptions, their perceptions of their bodies, and then their relationships with one another. So Judith Butler seriously asks, and I quote, is there a physical body prior to the perceptually perceived body? An impossible question to decide. It's just words. It's just linguistic magic. Now, if you're not acquainted with this type of deconstruction, it sounds like nonsense. It is. Um, But it's sophisticated gibberish. It's sophisticated gibberish. Because it makes people think, wow, I must be missing something really deep here. Some (laughs) hidden insight into reality that... So these are Gnostic pretenders, basically. They were there in the time of the early church. There's a secret knowledge, a secret key to reality. And it's wrapped in technical verbiage, but it basically means that normative sex, male and female, as created by God, needs to be rejected for human beings to be free. There's no creation order. There's no law order. There's no male and female as given by God. There's no pre-established nature to human beings. Whatever a human being is, and they can't tell us what a human being is, language makes reality. Words are magic. So you've actually got a parody here of creation. Words create reality. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So, man whose goal is to be as God, according to the book of Genesis, in rebellion and sin, we're not just alienated from God by our sin, we then try and alienate creation from God. We're alienated from God, therefore we try and alienate creation from God. And to be as God means we will now use our own words to recreate reality. The cultural political task, as it confronts us today, is clear, according to Butler. To overthrow the entire discourse on sex, indeed to overthrow the very grammar that institutes gender or fictive sex as an essential attribute of humans and objects alike. That's going to be a particular problem for the French. So, the repetition of words 
like man and woman, are hierarchical binarisms, according to them, that must now be altered. And we need a new subversive repetition. This is why I stopped my own children from ever using the terms gay or transgender or, or anything that adopts the language that's reshaping people's understanding of reality. Butler predicted 30 years ago, she said this, the loss of gender norms would have the effect of proliferating gender configurations, destabilizing substantive identity, and depriving the naturalizing narratives of compulsory heterosexuality of their central protagonists, man and woman. She said that 30 years ago. And what's happening in our social order today? This is done by extending the idea of the political to questions not traditionally seen as political. The political is the very signifying practices for these radicals that establish, regulate, and deregulate identity. So foundational theological and philosophical questions have now become matters for politics, for politicians, and courts to rule on. The implications of this are far-reaching. Something as simple and as basic to human life as male and female as gender are illusory. There is no real ontology of, den- of gender. Ontology now is not a foundation. It's a political creation. Ontology is a political creation. They borrowed a phrase, these radicals, from... Antonin Artaud, a surrealist playwright, he used the expression, a body without organs. And they deployed it to use, to interpret the body as a biological receptacle in which self, the self-creating intellect is contained, where the body awaits identity. When you have made him a body without organs, then you will have delivered him from all his automatic reactions and restored him to his true freedom. In other words, that's an image of what's left when all the supposedly cultural impositions are left behind. You have no true nature. And so Butler demands a reconsideration of the figure of the body as mute prior to culture awaiting signification. So you take the dust of your desires, the idol of your organless body, You breathe life into that person by a linguistic incantation. It's a creation parody. It's magic. It spells. It's paganism. Scruton says the resulting nonsense, although it cannot be easily deciphered intellectually, can be deciphered politically. It is directed nonsense, and it's directed at the enemy. We are to discard the old hierarchies, the binary structures, the trees of the bourgeoisie family and the capitalist machine and reform ourselves as grassroots communities of underground activists. The the assault is aimed primarily at the language through which the enemy lays claim to the world. The attack ultimately is on the gospel. It's on Jesus Christ. It's upon his word. Can any believer then doubt that we need a Christian mind? 
We have to thus rethink the task. I'll take two more minutes in developing this Christian mind. Developing a Christian mind is the task that was actually given to God's people even from the beginning of creation. But it's been given to us afresh in the gospel. We've neglected it for a long time and we're paying the cultural price for it now, but forging Christian thinking about everything is part of the mission God assigns to us in his covenant. Some theologians call it the cultural mandate. It's never been abrogated. Scripture tells us all of reality is ordered and structured in life dependence on God and his word, and that this is the framework for Christian thought and action. The origin and destiny of all creation is in Christ. Nothing exists from and for itself. Look what Paul says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So we're at home in creation. We're at home in culture. We're embedded in a created reality. We're attuned inescapably to the word of God. And our historical task is to both become ourselves and make willing citizens of the kingdom of God and turn creation into a God-glorifying culture by faithfulness and obedience. If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. So Christ has introduced in the gospel a redirecting power into the totality of creation and cultural life. And this glorious task involves our whole person, including our bodies. This is why Paul says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord And it will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Which is to say the entirety of our earthly existence must become members of Jesus Christ. Not just the soul, as though that's the real part of you. But the totality of our life and its integrated fullness. We belong to God, heart, mind, soul, body, The totality of our life in everything that we do, our hopes, our goals, our past, our present, our future belong to the covenant, belong to Christ and his covenant. And this is why Paul writes in a manner that actually rebukes and brings into judgment all this apostate humanistic culture which hates and denies humanity and hates and denies the body and challenges us to forge a Christian mind. He says this, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a mandate. To present ourselves, the unity of ourselves, as a spiritual act of worship. There's no dualism there. Now, you might feel at a conference like this, especially when you hear lectures like that, that introduce or cover some very difficult and thorny problems in our culture, inadequate and ill-equipped for the task. That's why Reform Con is happening. 
But it is only true that we are inadequate to the task if we surrender the word of God. That makes us inadequate for the task. When liberal theology in the early part of the last century, latter part of the 19th century actually, began to surrender the word of God, the result from Though these people, in many instances, were well-meaning, they thought they had to demythologize the Bible, make it believable for 20th century people. They only succeeded in hollowing out and destroying their churches. If we surrender the Word of God and rely on ourselves and our own understanding, we're doomed to failure. But the late Christian philosopher, his Canadian, Bernard Zilstra, who reminds me of a former president of yours, He said, he wrote, that we have lost the strength of the word because of a reliance, quote, on visions foreign to the scriptures. All these foreign visions generally have the same effect. The redemption of Jesus Christ is severed from the given condition of life in this world, the Father's good creation. Hence our hesitance in understanding the Bible's kingdom vision. But this is our Father's world. Claimed by the Lord, the new Lord, Jesus Christ. Our task is to regain the biblical vision. And friends, believe me, this can be done by faith, by the transformation of our minds and hearts as we, in boldness and confidence, rebuild the Christian mind and confront our secular culture.